0: If you would, turn in your Bibles this morning to 1 Samuel, as we continue to look at testimonies throughout Scripture, um, as we see not only in Scripture the last few weeks, as we've seen uh, Joseph and Moses and Miriam and David, um, but we've also seen from our church family Examples of God working in our lives and then how we are to praise him um, and to talk about the experiences that we've had with a glorious God and how he interacts in our life. And we continue this week with that theme looking at Hannah. Now if you don't know much about Hannah, Hannah is the mother of Samuel whom the book is named after. Samuel would go on to become the last judge uh, of Israel, but also in many ways the first prophet of Israel. Um, And so Samuel holds a unique combination of ministries in his life. He's also the one who would anoint two kings, the first two kings of Israel, Saul and David, and has just an, an incredible ministry throughout his life. But all of that begins with Hannah and her faithfulness. And so uh, we're going to look at her testimony this morning and the story of, of Hannah and her son Samuel. And so hopefully by now you found 1 Samuel. If you would please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word this morning. 1 Samuel, starting in verse 26, reading through chapter 2, verse 11. Just a little bit of background As Hannah, as we get to 26, Hannah is coming back to Shiloh, the place of worship of God, and there she meets the high priest Eli, and this is how she responds. She says, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly, let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, and we are incredibly thankful. Thankful that we worship a God who hears us. Not just a God who is present, not just a God who is creator, not just a God who has put all these things in motion and then stepped back. But a God who desires to be involved, a God that desires to walk with us, a God who loves us, a God who is patient with us, a God who has saved us. Father, I pray this morning that we would find you that we would know you and your presence this morning. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you you can be you may be seated. Hannah gives this wonderful testimony in especially chapter 2 of what God has done in her life. And so I want up a little bit and talk about what is it that Hannah is praising God for? What is it that she is so excited about? To talk about Hannah's story. Hannah's story very could be titled, The Lord Answers Prayer. In order to understand Hannah's situation, you got to understand a little bit about her family situation. We see in the first chapter of Samuel, a man named Elkanah. Elkanah is apparently a god fearer We see him making a regular pilgrimage to Shiloh, the place of worship, as is um, commanded in the law. We see him give sacrifices, um, as is commanded in the law. So we get the idea that he is a faithful man. He is a man that loves his family. We see it in how he takes care of them, how he provides for them. And we even see it in the very words of 1 Samuel, that he loves Hannah especially his wife. We understand that he is probably more likely a rich man. We see it in the sacrifices he makes. Um, You'll notice that in chapter 1 around verse 26 that Hannah, when she takes Samuel to dedicate him to the Lord, that she brings a bull. That was not a poor man's sacrifice. That was a rich man's sacrifice. We also have the idea that he was rich because he had two wives, um, as I was reading this week, I was reminded of a, of a gentleman, of a chief in Madagascar. And Madagascar in the rural areas, polygamy is not unheard of. And so we were, I was with a missionary friend of mine. And in the course of the conversation with this particular chief, he said, uh, do, do you have more than one wife to try to get a gauge of what we were walking into? And the chief looked at him and said, do I look like a rich man? And uh, some of you got that and some of you didn't. Um, Some of you found it funny and some of you didn't. That's okay. Um, Elkanah, though, apparently is a rich man. He is able to take on a second wife and support her well. And so we, we gather that information about him, but we also gather an important problem that's happening. An important problem that's happening. You see, Elkanah and Hannah are not able to have children. And in this time, that is a devastating thing. It means that the family name will not live on. It means that all of the wealth and the possessions that he has accumulated over the course of his life, that there will be no one to pass it on, that strangers will receive all of those things. And for in this time of history, like I said, that is a devastating outcome. And so they are troubled by it. And we get the idea that that's where Peninnah steps into the picture. It's why he takes on a second wife, so that he can have an heir, so that they can have children, and through them, family name may be passed on. It's not an uncommon thing. We see it in Abraham and Sarah earlier in Genesis, This same concept, but it's not something that's advisable. There are those that would point to the Bible, and they would say, why would you believe in something that that makes uh, light of polygamy or endorses polygamy, and I would say, then you have not read the Bible carefully. You look at Scripture, and from Genesis through Revelation, Scripture announces that marriage is between one man and one woman alone for life. And any time you see polygamy show up in Scripture, you will also see trouble close at its heels, you think about Sarah and, and they, her and her husband Abraham invite Hagar into the picture so that they may have a child through her and problems ensue. You see the picture of Jacob and his two wives, Leah um, and, and Rachel, and you see pictures there and so on and so on and so on. David's family, you see problems with his multiple wives. Solomon, you see problems with multiple wives. It is not, Scripture does not paint polygamy as a positive thing. And even here, maybe especially here, you see it as well. Immediately, there are problems. Peninnah does have children, but she perceives, I think, pretty easily that she is not the first choice. He loves his wife, Hannah, and so she becomes bitter and jealous, and she begins to hold it over Hannah that Hannah has not had children. She begins to torment Hannah to the point where Hannah is unable to eat Hannah is grieved in her soul. And so Hannah begins to plead for a son, or she begins to desire a son, desire a child. And certainly many in our congregation know this desire, the, the, the want to have a, a family. And it's, it's not some passing whim. It's year in and year out that she is asking the Lord and approaching the Lord for this. It becomes a, the plea of her heart. Lord, give me a son. We see the depths of it in, in verse 9. It says, After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, a hand rose. Now Eli was the priest sitting on the seat beside the doorpost. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. This was not just a a simple passing fad. This was not just something that she thought of from time to time. This was the weight of her soul as she pleads to God for a son. And it's not just about having a child. That is certainly a major component in this. But we need to understand that this was also about vindication of her as a human being. Whether we understand this well or not, now in that time period, a woman who could not have children was seen as cursed. She was a burden to her family. She was at times as worthless. It's hard for us to wrap our brains around that, but for Hannah, that's the weight that she carried, not just that she didn't have a child to love on, not that she just didn't have a family of own, but the weight of the way the rest of the world looked at her. And so she prays to God, don't just give me a child, give me a son that I may be vindicated in the eyes of those who have passed judgment upon me, that they may know that I am yours. And so this plea, this emotional burden is on her heart, and she is praying to the Lord. It's interesting, I I always find it curious that her emotion is so deep that she is praying before the Lord in the temple, and, and she is ...deeply, but the words of, that are coming out of her lips aren't audible. I don't know if you've ever prayed like this, but sometimes you, you get in a place where you're before the Lord, and your heart is speaking, and your lips are moving, but nothing's coming out. To the point that Eli, the high priest, looks at her and says, this girl's drunk. Like, there's something wrong here. And so he walks up to her, and he actually chastises her. He says, hey, you need to, you need to knock, knock it off, <laughs> Like, you need to separate yourself from the bottle a little bit. And then Hannah pours her heart out. She says, you don't get it. This is what's going on in my life. And Eli, I believe in both compassion for this woman and also a little bit of embarrassment for sticking his foot in his mouth, blesses her and says, may the Lord answer prayer. Now, that's important to point out because later she, he's going to be the one that she testifies to. She, he's going to be the one that she comes to and says, remember me, I'm that woman. I'm the woman that was here before you that was muttering things that you couldn't understand. That you thought, like that's me. And now look. Because you see, God hears her plea. And God is gracious in his answer. He gives her a son who she calls Samuel. Samuel. <laughs> and she is good to her vow. She takes him and she presents him before, she presents him before the temple and dedicates him to the Lord, and he is raised by Eli in the temple for the service of the Lord. So we see Hannah's testimony here. Comes from this place of great desire, this grace of great need, this plea before the Lord, and his gracious answer. And so she begins to respond in kind, but first to Eli. Look at what the Lord has done. Look at this little boy who is prayed for. Look at this little boy who God has blessed me with. And then she burst out into, into this prayer of testimony before the Lord. So that's what we're going to look at a little bit this morning. As we approach it, I want you to note a few things here. First, note that this is the natural response of the believer. We've said that before in this. We're going to say it again many times in this sermon series. But the natural response of the believer, the natural response of the individual who God has done something in their lives, the natural response is to announce it. Not to hide it. The natural response is to testify. This is what God has done in my life. This is who he is and what he has accomplished. And to sing it from the rooftops. Not to hide it. The second thing that we should note here is a connection to Mary's response. Mary, the mother of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. If you turn to Luke, we're, don't turn there right now. But if you turn to Luke in the future, we're going to get there in a few weeks Mary has a similar response to the message of the angel that Hannah does here. In fact, when you begin to overlap them, it's interesting some of the similar themes that are in both praises, both testimonies. I want you to see another connection here. If you go to the end of verse 10 in chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 10, we're going to look at just the second half just briefly. In the last three lines of her prayer, it says this, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now on its surface, we read that and we're like, oh, okay, that's a good ending to a prayer. But I want you to understand a couple of things. One, I want you to see that line, he will give strength to his king. There is no king in Israel right now. They're still under the judges. Is no king. Saul would not be king. For several more decades. So what is Hannah looking at here? What's going on here? Well one. There is a provision. In the Levitical law. In the law of Israel. For a king. God looked forward in their history. Knew that they would desire a king. And so he makes provision for the king. Of how the king is to act. And what the king is to do. And so Hannah is In some ways, understanding and looking forward to that herself in this prayer. That God is going to place a king and that he is going to strengthen his king. And that seems very fitting. After all, when we get to 1 Samuel, what happens in 1 Samuel? Israel rejects God. They reject the the judges and they say, we want a king. And first it's Saul and then later we see the great king David. But I don't think that's entirely what Hannah has in mind, what God has put on Hannah's heart. Look at the the last line. It says, and exalt the horn of his anointed. Okay, the idea of a horn is someone's strength. You see it at the beginning of the prayer when she says, my horn is exalted in the Lord. So the horn, was a picture of an individual's strength. And when we say that the horn is exalted or the horn is lifted up, it is God lifting up the strength or the purpose of the individual. Who is, who is he exalted here? He exalts the horn of his anointed. If you are comfortable making notes in your Bible, that word anointed there is the first time we see the, in the Hebrew the idea of Messiah. Messiah. It's the first time that we see the concept of a Messiah in the Old Testament. So Hannah is looking forward, not just to a king that God would strengthen. She is looking forward to an anointed one who would be the salvation of his people. She is looking forward to Christ. And so you have this this testimony of Hannah that is also a prophecy towards what's coming, and then in a few weeks, we're going to see the opposite bookend where Mary gives a very similar testimony, and it's the fulfillment of the things that Hannah is talking about here, and so I want to, want to set that up for you that in a few weeks when we talk about Mary that, that they're, they're two bookends of this incredible story of God's salvation for his people. Lastly, as we look through Hannah's story, as we look through her testimony and her prayer, We should see what we talked about with the kids during the children's time. That there is a focus on not the gift but the giver. You'll notice that in chapter 2 as she begins to pray this prayer of testimony. And announce what God has done for her and who he is. Samuel is not mentioned. In fact she barely alludes to having children. She is not focused on the gift. That has been given. She is focused on the one who has given it. And she wants to praise his name. And my guess is. That based on what we see her say in chapter 2. Is that if God had answered differently. It would have driven Hannah further into her faith. And not away from it. Because Hannah is focused on the giver of things. Not on the gifts that he gives. It is the sad state of our, many of our churches today and many believers today that we are more focused on the gifts God can give us than we are on him. We are more desirous of heaven than we are of the presence of God. We are more desirous of his blessings here on earth than we are of spending time with him when he is the ultimate need. We are like the child who loves the sucker, and we forget the giver. Not Hannah. As we look through these few verses, Hannah is all about the giver. So let's look at that very quickly. Hannah's story. The Lord answers prayer. She gives a response to his work, and then she declares, There is no one like our God. She, she preaches, she testifies that he is holy. Verse 2, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. She proclaims for everyone to hear in this prayer that God is fundamentally different than everything and anyone else. He is out there. He is holy. He is righteous. He is perfect. Teaching 5th and 6th graders uh, these, the, during charge has opened my eyes to one, one fundamental truth that we, we as adults understand sometimes, but I don't think we understand how hard it is for us to understand, and that is this. When we talk to the 5th and 6th graders, we talk about sin and that none of us is perfect, and they all get that. They're all like, yeah, none of us is perfect. I mean, they see it in the world around them. Their teachers aren't perfect. Their parents aren't perfect. Their friends aren't perfect. They're not perfect. That is not a hard concept for a fifth and sixth grader to understand. But when you tell them that God is perfect, that blows their minds. They're like, wait, what? There is is someone that's perfect? And they, they struggle with that concept. We sometimes just take it by faith, but sometimes we should need to struggle with that concept too and understand how big a deal it is that God is perfect. He has never had an impact on us, He has never done the wrong thing, He has never failed to do the right thing. He is perfect, He's fundamentally different than we are, He is wise. She says, talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. And by him actions are weighed. She says he is wise. He knows all things. He sees all things. And he is able to do the right thing every time. When we make decisions, we can say none of those things. We we look at a situation, and even as much as we try, we can never understand the full complexity of the situation. We try to know the right thing to do, but our vision is limited where we can never fully know the outcome. Not only that, but even if we did know all those things, we would not always choose the right one. Even if we knew all things I know humans well enough to know that we still would not choose the right thing. That's not God. He is wise, He is holy, He is wise, He is sovereign. She goes on in, in this prayer to talk about all of the things that God is over. She begins to make a list. She talks about the mighty and the weak. She talks about the rich and the poor. She talks about those that have food and those that don't. She talks about the barren and those that have children. She talks about life and death. She talks about strong and weak. I think I've already said that one. But she goes on and she makes list after list, right? And the whole idea is not that just he interacts in those broad categories that from one end the from part of the spectrum to this part of the spectrum, but he is over all things. As Mike so put so well earlier, he is in control of all things. There is no coincidence in God's kingdom. He is holy. He is wise. He is sovereign. But this last one, I want it to blow your mind. He is for us. A holy God, a wise God, a sovereign God is all powerful. He is for us. It says in verse 9, he will guard the feet of his face But the wicked he will cut off in darkness. He is for us. You look at the religions around the world. You will see no such assurance. They will believe in a God. They believe in a force that's out there. But there is no assurance. In fact, in many cases, there is the exact opposite. They are not for you. You just obey out of fear. Or you obey hoping that you can get justice. You, you obey hoping that they find favor with you. Even Muhammad in the Quran talks about how that he, though you may obey Allah, that there is no guarantee that he will find favor in you or favor for you. But the scriptures tell us the exact opposite. They tell us that when we come to the Lord and we confess our sins, when we have our, put our faith and trust in him and we follow him, that we can be assured that he is for us. I want that to blow your mind. I want that to blow your mind. Oops. I want that to blow your mind. You, you make mistakes. You make mistakes all the time. You don't obey. You were a sinner. There there is nothing about you that earns your way to heaven. And yet the God of heaven who is perfect, who is wise, who is all-knowing, who is all-powerful, that he loves you and that he is for you if you will put your faith and trust in him. That's Tana's testimony. He is for you. He is not against you that begs the question, though. That begs the question, though. If he is for us, what do we do when God says no? What do we do when he says no? I look at our congregation. I look at my church family, and I look at every row and every face, and I know that there have been pleas of the heart Please of the heart, canna pleaded for a new job, or for children, or for the fixing of a marriage, or for the healing of a disease. And the answer has been no. What do we do then? First let me say this. I have no answer for why. I have no answer for why. If you are expecting me at this point to open up Scripture and to give you 14 verses on why he said no, I am unable to do that. I do not have privy to those conversations, and I would be terrified to do so. But there are some truths that we can glean. What do we do when he says no first? We remember that he always answers that his no is not him ignoring you his no is not him being out of the office that day that a no is not him not caring or not loving it is just simply a no Raising a two-year-old, I get asked a lot of questions. Someday I'm not going to be able to do these sermon illustrations when she's older, but raising a two-year-old, I get asked a lot of questions, and I have to say no quite a bit. That word has entered my vocabulary by times a million. It is not because I don't love her. It is not because I simply don't have time for her. It is not That answer is not because that I don't want her to enjoy life or I don't want her to be blessed. More often than not, the no is because I know things that she just simply doesn't. Answers that she's not ready for. Answers that even if I gave her that she couldn't comprehend. I say no and she says why and occasionally I get a little ornery and I begin to explain the why and her eyes glaze over and she goes, okay, daddy, and she walks away. Even when I give her the explanation, it is not understandable. In the same way, and I don't don't mean this to be flippant and I'm not trying to make light of anything, there are times when God tells us no that we wouldn't understand even if he explained it to us. But he knows better. At the same time, I think it's important to understand that when we are told no, that it's OK to grieve, I think somewhere along the line, we've gotten this concept of believers that even when we're told no, that we should just embrace it full-on and be happy about it. It's OK to grieve. It's okay to be disappointed. It's okay to mourn when God says no. In fact, I would venture to say, based on what I see in Scripture, that it is healthy for you to be disappointed and to mourn when God says no. If. If you don't stay there. Paul tells us he he speaks of two types of grief. He says there is a grief, and he's speaking of sin. He's speaking of the grief that comes when we sin. He says there's a grief that leads to death. It's a grief that we carry with us and we allow it to be a burden to our hearts. We don't share it with anybody, we don't confess it to anybody. It becomes a weight to our souls, it becomes bitterness in our hearts. And it drags us not towards the Father, but it drags us away from God. And then there is the grief that God gives. It is a grief that deepens our faith in him. It's a grief that helps us to understand that he is still a good God. Who has never, ever left our side. It is a grief that helps us to understand our need for him evermore. It's a grief that leads us not to hide, but rather to confess. To come to a church family and say, I cannot carry this burden alone. I cannot carry this disappointment on my own. I need help. I need the Lord, but I also need my church family To stand beside me. To walk this path with me. It leads to trust. I think Hannah understood this. I think that's why when you read her testimony. It's not a testimony about how great the gift is. It's a testimony of how great the giver is. That in her understanding of God's gracious answer. That God would have been the same either way. It pulls she has been pulled deeper into his presence. This is not in your notes, but I would I want to make a note here as well for my church family. If you know of someone that it seems as though God is telling them no, rally around them. Love on them well. Pray for them well. Be careful not to solve. You are not God either. You don't know why there's a no. You don't know why there's a wait. Do not be like Job's friends who come and they grieve for a moment and then they try to explain it. That causes problems. (laughs) Go read Job. But walk well with them. Let them know that they're not alone. Let them know that there are others that we understand what it's like to be told no. Pray that they would trust. This morning, do you see yourself in Hannah? Are you seeking desperately? There's something in your life, something in your soul that is has a longing. Maybe this morning. You just are missing something. Everyone else would look at your life and say, you have it all. It's all there. What could you possibly want? What could you possibly need? But you know inside of your heart that there is something missing. You look at Hannah's life. I love, I love her husband, Elkanah. He, he tries his best. God bless him. She is married to an incredibly rich man. She is married to an incredibly godly man. She is married to a man who loves her, and yet something is missing in her life. And he says to her, am I not more than you, to you than 10 sons? That comes out of a desire to help. I don't know that it really did. Welcome to being a husband. But are you missing something? Everyone else would look at your life and say, you've got it all, but you know now... There's something missing. There's something that I'm seeking. I just can't put my hand on it. Then this morning, Hannah and Scripture would invite you, come and see. Come and see. Come and see a God who hears our pleas. Psalm 31, 22, in my alarm I said, I am cut off from your sight, but you have heard the sound of my pleading when I cried to you for help. Come and see a God who doesn't just hear our pleas, but answers them. Isaiah 65, 24. Even before they call, I will answer. While they are speaking, I will hear. And we could find lots of other verses. You heard some of them this morning as Alan led us this morning into worship. He doesn't just hear our pleas, he answers them. Come and see a God who meets our greatest need. Brothers and sisters, our greatest need is not financial. Our greatest need is not political. Our greatest need is not our job or a better one. Our greatest need is not even our family, as glorious as a gift as they are. Our greatest need Is him. He created us. To know him. And as long as we are separate from him. There will always be something missing. As long as we keep our distance. There will always be something missing. Matthew 6.33. But seek first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Brothers and sisters. Let us glory and desire the giver and not the gift. That is the testimony of Hannah. This morning I'm going to have the praise team come back up and we're going to have a time of response this morning. Maybe you're here and you have never had a relationship with Jesus Christ and you would say, I I know something is missing. I know that I have been distant from him. I know that I've tried my own way and I have found it lacking. This morning, would you come to him and would you pray the prayer, Lord, forgive me for going my own way. I want to follow you. If you will do that this morning, I promise that he will hear you. That he will come close to you. This morning, maybe you are here and you are desperately seeking something. Bring it to him. He will answer. Maybe you're here this morning and you have been told no. I pray this morning that you would bring that to him, that you would bring your grief and your disappointment to him, that you would share it with someone in your church family, that we can walk that with you. No is not a sign of his abandonment. It is a sign of his love. This morning, I pray that we would respond to him as he has spoken to us. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. And Father, as I, as I look out across my church family this morning, Lord, I know that, Lord, that this message, Lord, that this testimony of Hannah's, Lord, that it is, it is an emotional one. Lord, it does push some buttons. Lord, that some of them are, are tears of joy that He has heard our plea and that we can praise you and that we can talk about, Lord, the magnificence of your name. And it is a, a joyous thing. And for others of us, Lord, they are tears of grief. Lord, that we are still waiting, or that we've been told no. Father, I pray that that regardless, Lord, that we would see your love for us, that we would hear the message that you are for us, and that we would run into your waiting arms, Lord, that we would run towards you and not away from you. Lord, that we would know the grace and the mercy and the peace and the joy and the hope that you provide, to know that the creator of all the universe is for us and not against us. Father, I pray that we would respond to that this morning. We ask this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You can stand with us. You can come to the altar. You can go grab